Come now to the reading of God's Word from 2 Timothy chapter 4. Recall uh, last week at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul spoke of how all Scripture is breathed out by God and is therefore sufficient and authoritative. It's able to equip the man of God for every good work. It's, it's sufficient for teaching, reproof, correction, and uh, training in righteousness. So flowing from that, then we see in chapter 4 what Paul charges uh, the man of God to do with that word of God. This is really what everything in the whole book of 2 Timothy has been uh, moving towards, the charge to preach the word in light of Christ's coming. Verses 1 through 8 of 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. As far the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it. Loved in uh, 1969, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that the most urgent need in the Christian church today is, how would you finish that sentence? Or about the most urgent need in, in the world, either today or, or in 1969, what would it be? Lloyd-Jones said, true preaching. I would say without hesitation that the most urgent need in the Christian church today is true preaching, and as it is the greatest and most urgent need in the church, it is obviously the greatest need of the world. And that's a statement I think the Apostle Paul would agree with, is he is drawing near to the end of his life already being, being poured out as a drink offering. This last will and testament that he leaves the church in, in the book of, of 2 Timothy, what is he concerned with at the very end of the letter but the preaching of the word? This charge in 4 verse 2 is what everything in the book has, has been driving toward, preach the word. That's the charge that we have before us in 2 Timothy chapter 4. I want to look at that charge in 
three parts this afternoon. First, as we consider the object of the charge, what, what is it exactly that Paul is calling Timothy to do? Uh, second, we'll consider the difficulty of the charge, uh, why it is that this charge will bring suffering. And third, the weightiness of the charge given by a dying apostle with God as witness. Look at me first at the object of the charge in 4 verse 2, the preach the word. This word, the, the verb there, preach, has the idea of the, the public heralding of a message by one who is, who is set apart in the, the same way that a king would have an official herald who he would send before him to, to proclaim the king's coming or to proclaim the king's edict. So the king of heaven sends heralds, a preacher specially set apart that is ordained by the church to proclaim his coming and proclaim his message. And that message is, is given in what it is that the herald is to proclaim in verse 2, uh, namely, the word, the authorized message of the king. As we saw at the end of, of chapter 3, the God-breathed scriptures. Paul says that is to be the message of the king's herald. He is to concern himself with preaching this word. In other words, the, the substance of the proclamation of the Christian preacher is not to be his, his own opinions or social commentary. It's not his tips on how to be a better person, but the God-breathed, wholly sufficient word of God. As one theologian has said, that means that a sermon is inextricably tied up with the word. If what the pastor proclaims are merely human insights, however perceptive they may be, what is happening is not what the Bible calls preaching. In the strict sense of the term, authentic preaching is expository preaching, where the sermon exposes or, or sets forth what the text says. Nothing more, nothing less. That's what Paul is calling Timothy, and by implication, every Christian preacher to the faithful delivery of the message of the king, 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, to rightly handle the word of truth. God has given us his message in the God-breathed scriptures, and the task of the preacher, therefore, is to explain and apply that message so that the main point of the passage being preached is the main point of the sermon. A herald who gets the message wrong is not a faithful herald of the king. A herald who adds to the message of the king or omits potentially offensive content in the king's message is not a faithful herald, however clever his innovations may be. But he must believe that the words of the one who sent him are sufficient. You must be deeply convinced of what we saw last week at the end of chapter 3 about the sufficiency of the word, that it's profitable and everything needed for life and godliness, equipping the man of God for every good work. So he doesn't have to turn to other means to, to serve God's people, but God has given him in his word what he needs. The word that is sufficient for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Every kind of need that God's people might have, the word is sufficient 
to meet. That was Paul's point at the end of, of chapter 3. And so now flowing from that is, is, is this. Timothy, if the word is sufficient, then give yourself to the preaching of it. You must be absolutely convinced that the word is sufficient to meet every pastoral need. For if you are, then you will give yourself to the preaching of it. But if you aren't, if you are not absolutely convinced of the doctrine of the sufficiency of, of the scriptures, as, as we saw last week from the end of chapter 3, then you will begin to, to turn to other means, other methods. Paul wants Timothy to believe that the word is sufficient and, and out of that conviction of the sufficiency of the scriptures to give himself to the study of it and the proclamation of it, reproving, rebuking, exhorting, and teaching with complete patience. Believing, as one pastor said, that the word of God will do the work of God by the power of the spirit of God when the servants of God release that word from the pulpit. Paul calls Timothy, and by implication, every preacher to be, first of all, preachers of the word. Giving themselves to the careful, consecutive exposition of God's inspired word, every part of it. And I say that word consecutive because there is, um, in in the the history of, of Reformed preaching and understanding, that to faithfully exposit the word means to not only go verse by verse, but, but through books of the Bible. One of the most important things that happened at the time of the Reformation was, I think it was the year 1519 or so, when Ulrich Zwingli on January 1st began to, to simply preach verse by verse to the Gospel of Matthew, beginning at 1 verse 1, and going verse by verse, section by section, not uh, omitting or, or skipping over things that, that seemed maybe not so interesting, like, like genealogies, but allowing God's, God to speak for himself. Preaching, as, as Paul said in Acts chapter 20, the whole counsel of God. Every part of it. As we saw last week, both New Testament and the Old Testament, using all of it to reprove and rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And just as every part of the word is, is to be uh, preached, skipping over none of it, so every part that is preached is to be preached not in isolation from the Bible's whole story from the Bible's main message. But Paul, after a little excursus, and we'll come back to in in verses 2 and 3 on the the opposition that the faithful preacher can expect, or rather verses 3 and 4, in verse 5, Paul then, then summarizes this charge to Timothy by telling him to do the work of an evangelist. Verse 2 here is the, the central charge. Timothy, preach the word. The rest of verse 2 fills that out a little bit. And then in verses 3 and 4, we see this little excursus about the, the opposition Timothy is going to expect. Then in verse 5, Paul comes back to the main charge about preaching the word. And he, he modifies that with a number of, of things, including doing the work of an evangelist which is not speaking about Timothy's informal ministry in the neighborhood, but but again, is is modifying that central charge to preach the word by saying, Timothy, the word that you preach is an evangelical word. It's It's a gospel word. 
Timothy, if you would fulfill your ministry and, and preach the word, then in preaching that word, you must preach the gospel. You must preach the evangel. For remember what we saw last week, that these scriptures are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ. They're ultimately about Jesus. And so to faithfully preach the word, Timothy must preach the word, our Lord Jesus Christ. Michael Brown puts it this way. He says, above all, faithful preaching will consistently proclaim the person and work of Christ as sufficient for our salvation. That is the meaning of Paul's exhortation to do the work of an evangelist. While there is a place for for personal evangelism, the life and ministry of the pastor, the emphasis in Paul's charge is with regard to the preaching of the word. For Paul, preaching the word means preaching Christ. The one great theme that the preacher must always bring out of the word is Christ and him crucified, risen, and coming again. To preach the word faithfully is to preach Christ. That's the point Paul is here making that he just made in 3 verse 15, that all scripture is about Jesus, and so to preach the word is to preach him. It's to do what Acts chapter 8 says Philip did with that Ethiopian eunuch as he opened up the word to him. It says, and he preached to him Jesus. Spurgeon said, leave out Christ from the preaching and you shall do nothing. A sermon without Christ is a mistake in conception and a crime in execution. However grand the language, it will be much ado about nothing if Christ be not there. So Timothy, do the work of an evangelist and preach Christ. Yes, carefully show us the meaning of every word and every verse, but do so in the context of the overarching story of redemption. Don't lose the forest for the trees, but as a a herald, as one who proclaims, you must first of all proclaim what God has done in Christ. As Paul said in two, uh, uh, 1 verse 9, he has saved us not because of our works, but because of his grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began and has now been manifest, the appearing of our Savior who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. That's the way that Paul has, has thus far summarized the gospel for us. Faithful Christian preaching must proclaim that message, the promise of life. Real exhortation, teaching, and rebuke contains that message. By the way, that that word for exhort uh, can be translated uh, comfort or or encourage. It's it's ultimately this message that brings comfort, Lord's Day 1. So fulfill your ministry by proclaiming it from Genesis to Revelation, heralding what God has done how he saved us not because of our works, but sent his son to fulfill the covenant of works for us as our representative and then die in our place and take our curse that we might live. It is one day coming again that we might enter into that life fully. Proclaim that good news. And in so doing, fulfill your ministry that God has set you apart to do as his herald of salvation. That's the charge that Paul gives Timothy. That he gives by implication to every Christian preacher. And he also then gives Timothy a warning. 
He wants to make sure that, that he understands that preaching this good news is not necessarily going to be easy as, as he moves in the middle part of our section from the, the object of the charge to the, the difficulty of the charge, where there will be opposition to the preaching of this gospel. And Paul has already made that clear from the very beginning of his letter. We're in 1 verse 8, in his first mention of suffering, it was suffering for the gospel. He said to Timothy, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So in 1 verse 12, just a few verses later, after explaining uh, the, the gospel that Paul was set apart as a preacher and apostle of, he says, this is why I suffer as I do. Two verse three, he calls Timothy to entrust this same gospel to faithful men, but then says, Timothy, share in suffering. Over and over in this letter, we see the gospel will be opposed. In following Paul's teaching, 2 Timothy 3 verse 10, Timothy must share in his suffering. 3 verse 11. That theme of suffering for the gospel, that theme of of God publishing the good news of a suffering Savior through the suffering of his servants continues now in chapter 4 where Paul calls for Timothy and all gospel preachers to preach the word. That, That charge is then followed by all kinds of warnings about how that word will not be received. Beginning with that phrase in verse 2, in season and out of season which is to say, Timothy, you must preach this word in seasons where it is welcome and in seasons where it's not. You must preach this word in, in times where, where the culture thinks that it's, it's relevant and in times where the culture sees it as irrelevant. In times of revival or in times like those described in 3 verses 1 to 5 where people are lovers of self and not lovers of God or the gospel is met with hostility. Preach it when the wider society receives it or when they consider it hate speech. Or even locally, when your church in Ephesus wants to hear it or when they don't. That's the point of verse 3, that the time is coming when they will not endure sound teaching but will have itching ears and accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and, and will turn away from the truth and wander off into myths. Perhaps like the kind of thing we saw at the end of chapter 2. Timothy, they they won't want to hear your reproof and and your rebukes. They won't want to hear the gospel, but they'll tune it out. They'll cover their ears. Your ministry among them, Timothy, is not going to be easy, both in the wider culture and perhaps in your own flock. There will be times of receptivity and there will be times of hostility. And so your labors, verse 5, are going to require sober-mindedness. Verse 2, patience. Where you're going to be tempted to to lose your calm, to become frustrated or or discouraged. That's why he says in verse 5, endure suffering. Repeating what he's already said back in 2 verse 3 and 2 verse 12, Timothy, share in suffering as a good soldier, endure. Paul makes clear again that what he is calling Timothy to will not be easy. We can sort of fast forward and use a few more recent, uh, somewhat more recent examples. He's, he's saying, Timothy, you might have seasons like Charles Simeon, 
believe the 19th century uh, pastor in, in Cambridge, where, where for several years the people of his own church would, would lock him out of the building and, and pelt him with eggs and lock up the pews so that his hearers couldn't come. They would circulate petitions for his removal for 12 years. Or you might have seasons like John Bunyan where, where you're in prison or like the Apostle Paul. Like Moses or Elijah, your message might not be welcome, whether by the church or by the magistrate or by the people in society. If you proclaim the word, you must be prepared to suffer. As one pastor said, endure suffering is the motto of apostolic ministry. Christ's sufferings are the pattern of his servants. That's true of all his people in a measure. Christ says, if you would follow me, you must take up your cross. Paul's reminding us it's it's true, especially of those who would proclaim the message of a crucified king. If you will proclaim that message, then you must be prepared to adorn it with suffering. That's what Paul tells Timothy in verse 2. In verse 3, in verse 4, in verse 5, then in verse 6 is the, the icing on the cake as he points Timothy to his own suffering and reminds him, Timothy, your suffering might even involve being poured out as a drink offering. Your blood will be poured out in martyrdom as a sacrificial act of worship. That's the image of, of verse 6 where Paul says, I, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. Yes, he's speaking about his martyrdom, but he's he's speaking out in the language of the Old Testament sacrificial offerings to suggest that that his martyrdom is in service to the king. It is a sacrificial act of worship. Written all over this passage about the preaching of the word is the inevitability of suffering for it. He's saying as you do the work of an evangelist preaching the gospel of our suffering Savior, you will suffer too. The charge that Paul gives is, is a difficult one. I think especially of, of the, the persecuted church for whom we've prayed this afternoon. We have lived in, in times of relative ease, but that is not the case for much of the church, throughout much of the world, throughout much of church history. The charge that Paul gives in 2 Timothy 4 verse 2 is not an easy one to embrace. And yet it is one that Paul himself, the one who gives this charge, has himself embraced. Which is why he points Timothy to his own example of of fulfilling his ministry, of fighting the good fight, of keeping the faith, and of finishing the race. Because what he calls Timothy to do is precisely what he himself has done. Let's notice finally the solemnity of this charge given by a dying apostle in the presence of God Almighty, he has fought the good fight, he has finished the race, he has kept the faith, the same faith that he proclaims, not swerving from it, but has, has rightly handled the word of truth as he calls Timothy also to do. The charge that is here given is given by one who has kept it unto death. Not only that, but it's, it's also given in the presence of Almighty God. As as you notice, this passage both begins and ends with a reminder of the one to whom Timothy will give an account. Verse 1, the whole charge that Paul gives is is preceded by this this really unparalleled, um, 
I, I, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. I'm not aware of many other commands in the New Testament that are, are preceded by, by such a, a solemn charge. He reminds Timothy that he will stand before Christ as judge to give an account for how he proclaimed him. He reminds him that the herald must stand before the king to give an account for whether he rightly handled his message. He reminds Timothy that he must minister in light of a judgment that will have implications both for him and for his hearers. His hearers who must likewise be made ready for that day of judgment. So this, this gospel that he heralds is a matter of life and death. There is a great solemnity to the charge that he is given. He, he must not lose sight of the coming of Christ the King, who not only he, but also his hearers will stand before his judge at his appearing and the full coming of his kingdom. Paul reminds Timothy and every gospel preacher of, of the weightiness of their call. And he also reminds him in verse 8 that for the one who fulfills his ministry, as Paul has, there is laid up for him a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award him on that day. Again, this is speaking of the day of Christ's coming, the same day that was mentioned in verse 1. Here, Paul points Timothy and every gospel preacher to the coming of Christ, the chief shepherd, and the hope that when he appears, they will receive an unfading crown of glory. It's what uh, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5. And Paul here says the same, the crown of righteousness. He wants him to know and be reminded that though this charge to preach the gospel of a suffering Savior is a difficult one, yet, as he said in chapter 2, if we have died with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. Here again, he points him to that same hope of glory that he spoke of in chapter 2. He points him to that same crown that he spoke of in in 2 verse 5 where he said that the athlete who competes according to the rules, namely suffering, will be awarded with a glorious crown. He points him to that that same hope of glory. That same hope of glory that if you remember from 2 verse 8 was was also Christ, the offspring of David who has risen from the dead, who shares his pattern of suffering unto glory with his people. That's what Paul means in in verse 8, that that for all who love Christ's appearing, there is laid up for them a crown of righteousness when he appears. And that hope is to propel the preacher to fulfill his ministry and finish the race. I came across a church's um, doctrinal statement this this last week that, that said in the section on Christ's return that it it motivates us to sacrificial service and energetic mission. That's the point that Paul is here making, that that the sacrifice will be worth it. So lift your eyes to the coming glory, the crown of righteousness that will be given to all who love his appearing and press on. Preach the word because Christ is coming again. Endure suffering because Christ is coming again. Do so both in season and out of season because Christ is coming again. 
Even if, if your people don't want to hear it, even if you end up in prison like me, even if you end up being poured out as a drink offering, spilling your blood in martyrdom, Christ is coming again. The one who spilled his blood for you, it is then raised up in glory, vindicated in righteousness, it is coming again to share that glory and crown of righteousness with you. So endure suffering and preach the word. Preach Christ. And believe the same gospel that you proclaim. Let it stir you to sacrificial service and energetic mission. That's the point that Paul here makes, summing up so much of of the message of this whole book where he has been pointing us to the promise of life where though we share uh, now in suffering for the gospel, he will keep us until that day. If we have died with him, we will live with him. If we endure with him, we will reign with him. And so we press on in faithfulness to the word. If you look forward just a few verses, then Paul also gives us an example of what this doesn't look like in 4 verse 10 in, in Demas, who being in love with the present age, forsook the mission. Paul is saying, rather than being like Demas, who who in love with this present age, this present world order, forsook the mission, rather, I want you to look to the appearance of Christ. I want you to love his appearing and to bank your life on that. To love the coming of our Lord Jesus that will usher in a new age and bank your life on that. Don't be like Demas nor like those in 4 verse 3 who have turned away from the truth because they want teachers to suit their own passions. But being hearers of the word and and so having our hearts um, stirred by the preaching of the gospel so that we love Christ appearing too. This this passage has implications not only for preachers but, but for all of us. For those involved in the ministry of the word, whether formally or informally, it reminds us to to preach the word, nothing more, nothing less. To make sure that in preaching that word, we are doing the work of an evangelist, preaching Christ. That even if that word is not well received, we press on even in the midst of opposition, letting love for Christ appearing motivate our mission. And then for those in the pew, this passage reminds us to be praying for those who preach, that they would, would preach the word carefully, Christ-centeredly, both in season and out of season, that God would, would continue to raise up more preachers to do just that. Giving thanks when he does, like our brother Steve will be ordained this, this Friday. We give thanks for that, and we continue to pray that God will raise up yet more preachers who love Christ appearing and so faithfully herald his message in view of his coming. Pray for revival of of Christ-centered preaching in Canada, of faithful exposition that unleashes the word of God to do the work of God with the power of the spirit of God. And then even as, as we pray for that, we value that ourselves. 
not having the itching ears that this passage speaks of, wanting to hear what we want to hear, accumulating for ourselves teachers to suit our own passions and preferences and hobby horses, whatever those may be, but we value the kind of thing God values, careful, Christ-centered ministry of the word that is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's what the dying apostle here tells us to value. As Lloyd-Jones said, that is the greatest need in the church and the greatest need in the world, preaching that is dictated by the word and glories in Christ. So that more and more as we hear it, we too would, would love Christ's appearing and not be those like Demas who are in love with this present age, but would be in love with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who is coming again. Even like the bride in the Song of Songs would say, Come quickly, Lord Jesus, hasten, my beloved. We have our hearts so stirred by the preaching of the word to long for the coming of our Lord who is our life. Do you value that, that kind of preaching? Do you love the coming of our Lord Jesus? And rather than being the kind of hearer that Paul describes in verses 3 and 4, are you the kind who loves to hear the voice of your beloved? And so you value the kind of preaching that makes his message central. That's what the dying apostle is setting before us in these verses. Again, not just to Timothy, but but as I've I've said before, this letter to Timothy is for the whole church. We we see that in his introduction at the beginning. We see that in the the plural benediction where he says, grace be with you in the plural in verse 22. He's speaking to Timothy, yes, but he's speaking past him to the whole church then and the whole church of all ages. Preach the word. Love the word and receive the word and love the Christ who is contained in it, longing for his coming when each and every one of us will be awarded with a crown of righteousness. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Your word that speaks to us of Christ, that as it's faithfully preached by heralds who proclaim the victory of the king, Christ himself is proclaimed. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be hearers who love to hear his voice, who long for his coming, who love his coming. Lord, as we, as we search our hearts and honestly ask ourselves that question, do I love the appearing of our Lord Jesus? How often do I think about it? How often do I pray for it? We confess, Lord, that uh, too often we are those who love this present age. So we pray that you would help us, Lord, to be those who love Christ's appearing, who long for his coming, and who are motivated then to share in sacrificial service and energetic mission by that love for his coming. Lord, we pray that you would help all of us who are involved, whether formally or informally, in teaching the word to be faithful in it. Think not only of the preaching that goes on here, but again, we think of our brother Steve who will be ordained this week. We think of, of Reverend Langendoon, Reverend Bout. Think of our, our brother Wilf as he labors among the migrants 
Think of those who are involved in the work of, of roots. All of these different ways, Father, that, that the word goes out. We pray that you would help each one, whether formally or informally, who is involved in teaching that word, to be faithful in it. Even to be willing to suffer for it. We pray that you would help all of us who hear that word not to turn away from the truth and wander off into myths, into to hobby horses where, where we are brought away from the main thing, but rather to value and pray for and receive the kind of, of word ministry that will make us more and more long for Christ's coming, more and more love him and love his appearing and less and less love this present age. We pray that by your spirit you would do that in us through the word that is preached from Lord's Day to Lord's Day, both here and in every place. We pray in Jesus' name.